Welcome everyone to the gaming couch. Be it video games, card games, or board games, we'll have a good time playing. So come and join me on the couch. This is your host, Smart Boy. Hello everyone, and uh, welcome back. And if you're wondering what I'm saying welcome back to, well, welcome back to just my mindless ramblings that I do once a week. And I appreciate those who listen. <laughs> Alright, so this week I want to tackle an old subject and just kind of revisit it because I did some D&D over the past week and some pretty interesting, compelling, and just kind of like fun things happened. A while back, near the beginning, we kind of talked about player interaction and the agency that people have when playing games. And I'm not talking just RPGs. I'm talking like video games, tabletop, board games, you know, whatever. That agency that keeps the player involved. And of course, RPGs, whether it be a tabletop or be a video game, has a lot more at stake there because part of the role-playing aspect of an RPG game is essentially that. It's who is my character, what stake do I have, what impact do I have, etc., etc., etc. And I first want to start with a little story of what my D&D group went through this past week. And this is the same group that I've referenced in the past that has Shin the Monk, Lucius the Rogue, and Amber the Fighter. The ones that some of them travel through the Abyss, they have a bunch of gnolls they're now dealing with in the Material Plane, and all that other just kind of like really fucked up stuff that's going on. So recently, they just finished up taking back a place called Copperfoot Castle, which was a fort originally run by orcs that was along the coast. And they came upon it because they were following the trail of the Knolls and their leader, Kadesh. They found out that over the course of the night, the Knolls had taken over the entire fort, brutally murdering every occupant inside. And it was a very lengthy, stressful battle as they had to fight through each room, taking out the Knolls to reclaim the fort. After they reclaimed the fort, they noticed that the carnage is continuing out in the real world, and so they moved forward to go to the next spot, and they discovered a town that was being ransacked by the gnolls. Buildings set ablaze, people being murdered, eaten, there were demons here now, like, things were just getting worse. Near the end, as they were trying to retake the town, and, well, not even retake the town, just save people. The town was lost at this point. They were just trying to save people. Near the end, one of their NPC companions, who was named Vidania, came under attack. Now, the important part of Vidanya is she is a character that they asked to help them out because she's helped them out in the past. They, they know of her from previous connections, things like that. And Shin, the monk, sees her as a mother figure. She's a very elderly elf. She doesn't have many years left, but she's very powerful and wise. And him also being an elf and being raised as a monk and not really having much family after he left the temple saw her as that parental figure. So he's very close to her. Now, near the end of this whole event, she is shot by a sniper that they didn't notice at first. And the sniper was armed with arrows of slaying. And those of you who don't know in D&D 5th edition, arrows of slaying are very, very powerful magic ammunition that when it hits a target that it's meant to slay, be you know, arrow of slaying, I think it's a said like arrow of dragon slaying, arrow of elf slaying, arrow of insert creature type here, slaying does an additional around 6d10 damage, which, if you're a low-level character, 
can wipe you out. Even the warrior and the paladin who have a good 80 plus hit points, a shot from one of those arrows can just about wipe them out. So Vidania gets hit with one of these. And of course, Shin starts to panic. He's currently engaged by the leader of the pack in the town and this other demon. And he's not looking too hot. He's getting the crap beaten out of him. And she gets shot and she's a bit far away. And then the rest of the party is kind of scattered out. So she starts to retreat and she gets out of sight and they completely kind of forget about her. I don't know if they forgot about her or they're like, okay, she's not in line of fire the sniper and Lucius is going up to deal with him. So let's just deal with this problem. After the fight was over and they ran back to check on her, that's when they found two more gnolls over her bloodied body. At the same time that was happening, there's a force, the Inquisition, which is a collection of paladins, assassins, clerics, stuff like that, come riding into town to take out the rest of the gnolls because they too are on the trail of Kadesh trying to save people, but they're more of like an army instead of a small squad. So the cliche thing happens. The cavalry rolls in a second too late. Shin... Obviously, the player, San, you know, my buddy Sanchez, is asking me constantly, can I tell if she's okay? Can I tell if she's okay? And I'm telling him, like, makes these checks, and he's doing really bad on these medicine checks. I'm like, you don't know. So, of course, he's freaking the hell out. They have their cleric comes by, along with another cleric from the Inquisition, that take her away, take Vidania away to try and save her. So, fast forward, they're at the camp with the Inquisition trying to talk about what to do next. The entire time they're there, Shin insists that he sits so he's able to see the medical tent that Vidanya went in. And he's constantly worried about her, even when they're talking about the next steps and how to work with the Inquisition to solve all these problems. Some time goes on, and something else happens at the same time he's waiting to see if Vidanya is okay. There's an assassin by the name of Rayfire that they've also interacted with in the past, but just Lucius the Rogue. This is an assassin that he was sent to track down and take out so that she couldn't kill one of the NPCs they were trying to protect. When that originally happened, he got the jump on her, completely annihilated her, but let her live. So she shows up again. And of course, when she shows up, I expected, knowing how my buddy Andrew plays, to be a little concerned. Well, at this point, after everything the player's been through, and this is also the same rogue that's possessed by a demon, mind you, he was totally fine with it. I was actually rather surprised. Rayfire shows up and gets to jump on him this time, but not violently. They're in the middle of camp, and she's not interested in killing him right now. That's not her current job. So she sits down next to him, and he's just like, oh, hey, it's you again. And he's completely calm and relaxed. And me as a GM, I'm taking that into the character of Rayfire, because Rayfire would act the same way. Like, I'm rather surprised. You're very calm. I'm impressed. And he's like, well, I mean, are you trying to kill me? No, I'm not trying to kill you. Okay, yeah, we're fine. He's this completely neutral character at this point that if someone's trying not to kill him, he's okay with them. He's neutral good. And he takes that as a sign of, I will do good and I will fight for my survival. But if this person is not an immediate threat, I don't care. So it was taking me back and it took her back. And the dialogue was kind of fun. It was very charming at a point because now, of course, she's completely interested in this guy. One, because he's the first person to ever best her in combat. And two... Compared to the first time they met where he was very, like, kind of like, shaky and, like, worried that he has this assassin before him, even though he has the upper hand, now he just seems like nothing happened to him. So now we've got these two interesting arcs going on. We have Shin the monk, who's completely, I mean, everyone, of course, is worried about Vidanya, but he's, like, the most worried because of who she is to him, and he's very concerned about what's going to happen, and then you have over here, you have Lucius, who 
is still slightly concerned about Vidanya, but is also seeming to just not care that this very dangerous force that he knows has tried to kill them in the past is here now and knows of their whereabouts. He has nothing, and he has nothing to worry about. So some time goes on. There's a couple of interesting engagements that happen where the players are also talking to another NPC that is in their party and learn of some pretty tragic stuff. I'll get into that later, though. I don't think that's the right time to bring it up right now because this is more about the players' involvement than like the NPCs and their story and how that's used. So I'll just focus on how players interact. So as the night goes on, it starts. the sun starts to set. People are starting to get ready to go to sleep. And then both of those hooks, the Vidanya trying to be saved and the Rayfire showing up, both come to a conclusion at the same time. And it's a very interesting dynamic that had a lot of like mixed emotions at the time. So I'll start with Rayfire. So Lucius is off somewhere else at a, at a small camp on the outskirts because one of the one of their party members is not coming into camp with the Inquisition. Again, that's up for another time. So he's with her, keeping her company. And while he's there, he sees in the bushes in the distance, Rayfire standing there, looking at him, kind of like doing that charismatic little flirty smirk, hands on the hip. You know, she she's showing off. She's presenting. And she just shakes her head in kind of like disappointment and walks off. So immediately, he's like, I get up and I go into the woods to try and find her. Again, she gets to jump on him and jumps behind him and has a blade to his throat. And at that point, everyone's like, there it is. See, now she's trying to take him out. Everyone assumed that was about to happen. And he was completely calm when she put the blade to his throat and waited. And it turns out, oh, no, this is how she puts a move on and spins him around. And he's a halfling. She's a half elf. So there's a height difference there. So she bends over to kiss him. And I, I ask him, I'm like, well, Andrew, what do you do? And he, it was just funny. He asked me. So is this like a PG-13 only game or something? I was like, Andrew, you do whatever the fuck you want to do. And he's like, oh, I'll go all in. <laughs> so we get, everyone just kind of starts laughing because this chick that went to kill him is now putting the moves on him. And this, you know, halfling little short rogue is like, fuck, I'm going all you know, I'm going in with this chick. And middle of the woods, outside of camp, they just took on dozens upon dozens of bloodthirsty gnolls. They're all wounded and tired and shit. And he's just getting laid. He's just having sex in the middle of the woods. Everyone finds that funny. And then, of course, Shin pauses. He's like, Okay, what about Vidanya? And, of course, the, the dialogue goes back to the other half of the camp where Shin waits for the news. And that's when they find out, you know, someone comes out, one of the other party members comes out to give him the news that Vidanya has passed away. You know, she, she's no longer with us. They were too late. The, the standard stuff. And suddenly he goes into this, like, there's this incredible moment of pause you know, everyone was just having a good laugh about what just happened, and now everyone's just kind of, like, stopped. And the room's just dead silent. I play online, and everyone's just dead silent. And he sits there, and he's like, well, I want to see the body first. So I'm like, okay. And we just play out how, you know, how it goes that he walks in, he sees her body there, et cetera, et cetera. He says his last, you know, he says his last words. He asked me, he's like, does she have any keepsakes on her that seem important to her i'm like well there's a necklace she's wearing and before he can even say anything else he's like i'm going to take that necklace okay so go ahead he then leaves and there's information that was given to him that she was holding on to that before this happened she said if anything happens to me i want you to take the satchel read the letters etc 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 so now he has another story hook that he has to go on that he's looking to 
fulfill Vidanya's last wish, wish and stuff like that. And I asked him, like, okay, so you read the letters. This is what they say. This is the idea of, you know, this is what you're looking at. And he's like, all right. I put them away. I'm like, does anything else you want to do? He's like, I go out into the field, and I just let it all out. You know, he's like, he's a monk who follows, like, the patron of partying, essentially. He's, he's into the drunken style and stuff like that. So he usually has alcohol on him. He's like, I just want to get blackout drunk right now and just cry my eyes out. I'm like, you're going to try your damnedest because you're used to drinking, but you're going to try your damnedest to get blackout drunk. And at that moment, I had to, like, recollect, and I kind of, like, talked to the party again. I'm like, so this is a very weird night we have. You know, Shin just found out Madanya died and is going through all this mourning and everything. And then, you know, two, three hundred feet away in the woods, you got Lucius is getting plowed. And then the fighter, Amber, he's a very, he's childlike. He's a childlike heart. You know, he's, he's a little crazy in combat of just doing silly things, but he's a kid at heart. So he's like, you know what? I don't know what's going on, so I'm just going to take a nap. Like, he does he has this idea that he just, he figures that everyone else is fine and safe. So he has nothing else to do. So he's like, I just sleep. So it's like, sure. <laughs> and that and that was where we called it. You know, we called it at that point where everyone is going through these different emotions. Be it very simple, like Amber just figuring everything's fine and passing out. Shin going through all this mourning and Lucia's getting laid. All these characters now have these different interests in what's going on because Amber, my buddy Sean. He was talking to me later. He's like, yeah, at the moment, I don't think I would do anything. But, of course, in the morning, you know, I want to ask what happened to Vidanya and then go through the motions at that point. You know, he played it very well. For being a guy who hasn't ever played D&D before, he played it very well with how he thinks his character would go about it. And then on the other hand, I talked to Lucius afterwards, you know, my buddy Andrew, and I messaged him. I'm like, so theoretically, let's say that it turns out that, yes, Rayfire did get pregnant and you would have a kid. And I was, like, kind of blown away by how he took it. He messages me. He's like, you know what? Honestly, I would make sure that she is tucked away and safe. And then once we're done with Kadesh and everything's taken care of, I would go back to her and make sure she stays protected and, you know, be there for my kid. And it's like, that's part of, like, you know, when you play a character, it's part of a reflection of who you are as a human being, obviously. But it's also really interesting to see how these hooks out of nowhere can take players in and how their interaction with people purely fictional and also if they have very minor interactions can go a very long way because at this point this woman that now might be pregnant with his kid which we'll, I'll get to that later you know in the game I don't know what I'm going to do with it the only other time he's met her was when she was trying to kill someone he was tasked with protecting and he had a confrontation with her that could have ended in one of them dying. He lucked out and it didn't happen, but it was this very close encounter with this bloodthirsty assassin. She leaves, and then months later she comes back and has sex with him, and he's all like, yeah, I'm there for her. That connection he suddenly builds, I don't know if it's for her personally or for this kid that might be his or both at the time, I'm not sure, but that idea of how he pushes that forward. And the same thing with Vidanya. Up until this point, Vidani only helped him out on one previous mission. It was just a minor interaction. It was a short little encounter. But he thought he was really cool, and she was very supportive and very helpful. And considering all the shit the three of them went through at that point with Lucius being possessed by a demon and all that kind of stuff, she was kind of welcoming of it. So Shin grew connected to her very quickly. And then when he teamed up with her again to go through Copperfoot Castle, he was very 
keen on, like, I will protect her. And again, this is only the second time they really interacted. So the player involvement in a game with these characters that you barely interact with, and as a term of, like, a GM of someone running a game, you make these characters just to populate your world at first, and some of them have an actual purpose, your players will do the craziest things with them. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. It's rather intriguing and kind of almost heartwarming that I can populate characters. And just with a little bit of personality, suddenly my characters are hooked. Hell, there was this other group, these rogues they were working with to escort this person out of the town during the time the assassin was there. It was all like, there was a lot of stuff going on at that time. And there was this one rogue that was just an utter asshole and cursing Shin out and stuff like that. And again, that was the only interaction they had. And ever since then, you know, my buddy Sanchez playing as Shin, he'd be like, yeah, I wonder how Finn's doing. You know, the elf that cursed him out. I, I like him. He's a pretty cool guy. Small little character traits go so far. And this kind of gets me into this other game that I was starting to look at. You know, D&D is great, especially 5th edition. I think in terms of D&D, 5th edition is great for people who've never tried D&D in the past or just like a role-playing game in general. It's pretty straightforward with battle mechanics and... If you so choose, because it is a role-playing game, they have a whole chapter on backstories, and you could push in an element of some role-play. Obviously, some people for that. Some people like combat-heavy. Some people look for a balance, stuff like that. Obviously, the Adventures League is a lot more about doing a module, running through these adventures, and more about, like, not as much role-playing as I understand are part of Adventures League, but I know some people that are. It seems to be a lot more of just your character going out on adventures and slaying monsters and stuff like that. And 5th edition is well built for that. That that can easily just be a thing you go into and just go kill things. And I look at then these other games I've started researching. Like Call of Cthulhu it has a pretty stable tabletop game. Like a little complex at times because of all the heavy role-playing elements. And it's also a D100 system of a D20 system, which gets intriguing. But it does something pretty cool with the sense that combat is worth a damn. There's... Things like the Star Wars RPG, I think, does an okay job having vitality points and hit points. And then D&D itself with high AP, HP banks, it's all well and good with how they do that. That it's just, hey, after a long rest, you get HP back, depending on how you run your game. You know, it, it's a fantasy setting that things can just happen that, boom, you're good to go. And Star Wars pushes a little more realism, but you can still fudge that and just be kind of like, eh, yeah, you're all good. You're all good. Call of Cthulhu tries to push it a little bit more, but I find it really hard to get into a good Call of Cthulhu campaign simply because it's heavy on investigation. Yes, there's role-playing, but if you don't have a group of people that's really the investigative type, Call of Cthulhu is a tough one to get into. And so I got this book for a different RPG. I got it a while ago, and I recently sat down and started reading it cover to cover to really understand everything. And it's Cyberpunk 2020. I have the second edition copy. Now, I do want to make a note. This is a rather old RPG, and the edition I have in my hand, which I'm actually holding because I want to reference it, was a reprint. So it's like there was first edition, second edition, and then this is the like the reprint of the second edition. So it's not technically a third edition, but they just kind of reprinted a number of things and put a combination of all these rules together and made some clarifications, yada, yada, yada. But anyway, it it kind of hits that middle ground. It hits. It has a lot of heavy role-playing stuff in it. However, like Call of Cthulhu, there's a pretty lengthy chapter on combat, and they make it very clear, like, 
combat can get complicated in times of the amount of rolls you have to do. The checks for this, the checks for that. Like, you have to roll to see if you hit. Okay, if you hit, which body part do you hit? Like, that's another roll. And do they have cover? Are they wearing armor? If they're wearing multiple layers of armor, you have to calculate. Da, da, da. There's a lot that goes into that calculation. However, I think it's well done in terms of if you get hit, you're down. Like, every time in this game you get hit by a bullet, a blade, or whatever, you got to make a check to ensure that system shock doesn't take over and knock you out. Because especially with your, like, your first time getting shot, like, it's going to be stunning. Like, you're going to be like, holy shit. Like, you're trying to cope with that. And you have to make that check that your character doesn't just go down from shock. And the more times they get hit, the closer, of course, they get to death. And there's no HP. There's just severity. Like, you have a stat that determines how resilient you are to damage. Beyond that, though, there's no HP. There's just, like, a checklist. And, hey, if you take 10 damage, you're now in the, you know, close to critical range. Even if you're, like, a healthy person, you're close to the critical range. And that means you're one step closer to death. If you get hit again, you're probably going to die. So it doesn't worry about, like, this class system that determines HP. The class system is more about pure skill, where D&D is a mix of, like, if you're playing a fighter or a barbarian, you have a good hit die, like a D12, D10. And, of course, you have abilities that help you manage that, like, have high HP, have high AC, and keep in the fray. This, it's, you're all just squishy meatbags, and if any of you get shot, you're screwed. And yet, I think it's, I think Cyberpunk, one, I love it because it's futuristic sci-fi, like, I've talked about Android Netrunner before, and I love that universe. So it has, it's kind of like that kind of universe for RPG playing. But I think it's really good in terms of introductory for players, because if you have the mindset to sit down and go through the length of making a character in this game, it is very, very heavy on the role-playing. I mean, I want to reference one of the chapters. In a lot of these RPG games, like D&D 5th Edition, I'm pretty sure it's somewhere in Star Wars. I haven't read the book in a while, the RPG rulebook. But there's always a chapter about making your character, specifically, like, backstory stuff, obviously. Like, there has to be. Now, in terms of, like, D&D 5th Edition, like I said, if you're going into, like, Adventures League or you want to do a combat-heavy campaign, if you don't have a backstory, it's not a big deal. It's more about going on that adventure and being the hero. 99% of the time, a D&D party is about being the hero and doing good. Well, with the cyberpunk world, because it's in that cyberpunk setting and that futuristic dystopian sci-fi setting, the book straight up tells you from the beginning, and it references it all the time, it's about survival. It's not so much about doing what's good, like... Being good can be a motivation. You're trying to take down the evil corporation, the police department, whatever. There could be good intentions. At the end of the day, though, survival is key. How you play your character is key. So their backstory chapter about how to make your character part of it, they tell as tales from the street. It's your life path. And there's a couple pages of just various charts where you roll dice to see what happened in your past and what's really cool is they say the limit of a player of a character in game is 16 years of age because at that point you're old enough to know what's what and they say that you can either roll for age or you can pick your age doesn't matter but for every year past 16 that you are so if you're 20 it's been four years if you're 32 it's been uh, 32 compared to 16 is what another six yeah another 16 yeah like 16 years, whatever. For each year that's passed since you turned 16, you had a major event that happened. So first, got to roll to see your family background. Like, what happened to your family? And it gets pretty interesting that what's their ranking? You know, they're part of the corporate. Are they a nomad pack? 
were they criminals? You know, like where they come from? Were they homeless? Stuff like that. And then it gets real, real quick where it's the next thing you roll after you find your ba- your parents like ranking. It's are they alive or did something happen? And the list of something that happened to your parents is they died in warfare, died in an accident, they were murdered, they have amnesia, don't remember you, you never knew your parents, they're in hiding to protect you, they left you with relatives for safekeeping, you never had, like you just grew up on the streets, you don't know your parents, you didn't have parents, like things get real really fast. And it also builds into like your childhood environment. So did you have a safe place growing up or were you on the streets? Was it dangerous? Stuff like that. And even if your family's alive, they have a check, like, Maybe your family's actually in danger at this point, and there's a tragedy going on. Maybe you had siblings, and possibly all your siblings died, or some of your siblings are still alive, and they hate you, or they love you, they idolize you, whatever. Like, There's so many interesting things go on. And then, as I referenced before, where every year that passes, you have to like do a new major event. They have these additional charts that big things can happen. Like, there was an accident. Now your face is horribly dif- disfigured. Maybe you lost a limb. Maybe a lover or a friend or a family member was killed. You know who it was, or maybe you don't. You're maybe in financial loss, and you have to pay back a debt. Possibly you're getting hunted down for some reason, like whether you did it or you, whether you were guilty or not. And, of course, on the flip side is there's the lucky ones. Like you, you could have gotten lucky where you came into a mass amount of wealth. You made a powerful friend or connection up high somewhere. Like So many things kind of go into it. And then there's your background, like your motivations personality traits, what do you think of other people, stuff like that. And I mentioned before, like, possibly you had a lover that got killed, where they have an entire section about romantic life. Maybe you have a lover still, or you have an ex-lover, or like, you can do the same thing in D&D, yes. I think in D&D, their whole chapter on backgrounds is a little shorter, and it's more open-ended in terms of, like, oh, you can, it's not your class, but you pick a background, like, you pick a noble background, or artisan background. And you roll in three different charts, a bond, a cork, you know, whatever. And you get a few extra, like, little bonus things. Like, it's nothing really hindering except for maybe, like, the negative thing. Like, you think you're better than everyone else or there's someone out looking for you. You know, there's, like, a story hook that the GM can use. Beyond that, though, it's mostly just like, yeah, this is how my character's quirky. You know, this is how I should play my character. In Cyberpunk, you could do the same thing. Like, you could ignore the charts they have from the whole life path chapter and just jump into it. But I think that's actually a negative in terms of how this game is run. Because everything in this game is supposed to be a little more realistic in terms of your character is shaped based on what happened. Like, in D&D, it's, yeah, I have a level 3 fighter human, if you want to go basic. Or, you know, I have a level 3 elf ranger or whatever at the start of a game. You meet a bunch of people in a tavern... And the mayor comes by and says, hey, I need help with this. And you go off on an adventure. Like, you're an adventurer. Why you're an adventurer? Okay, whatever. You're an adventurer going off to help people. Here it's what happened to you that fucked you up or what happened to you that it helped you out. And, you know, I mentioned the whole idea of, like, the accidents. Because another big part, because it's all cybernetic, you might have lost an arm and that's a major handicap. And now you're looking for money to get cybernetic enhancements and get a cyber arm at this point. The way your character goes forward is all based on the kind of stuff that happened in the past. And then on top of that, they have an entire section about how how it, like how you have to work, how your skills work, how you interact, stuff like that. You know, the entire chapter goes into detail of how all the skills work, and then they get into like the equipment and shit. But the equipment also has an important part about backstory. It's the fact that you look at some of these price tags, and it's very, very, very expensive things out there. I'm talking about a couple tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, et cetera, et cetera, like price tags. 
And so it's straight up like the game says you could, as part of your backstory, you're talking with the game master. Yeah, you were given $10,000, but you sold yourself to the military or a crime family or a corporation. They now own you. And part of how the game is played is, yeah, you, you got that $10,000 starting cash, but now everything you do is in service to this person. You are sold to this person. I And I love that idea of before the game even starts, you do – like it takes a while. I'll definitely admit that. Flipping through this rule book, it takes a while to set up a character. And that's because – you're skipping the whole building your character part in-game, and you're starting with a character. So the players, like, people out there who were interested in RPGs, but weren't exactly comfortable or interested or whatever, like, they had a hard time getting into that whole role-playing aspect of it, this game kind of jump-starts it. Yeah, you might be in service to this corporation and your family was assassinated. As a player, as a human being... Where's that connection in terms of, well, since these are all fictitious characters and I just started playing, I don't really know them that well. It just gives you somewhere to start. Like, you could, you, you can now ask yourself, okay, my parents were killed and I'm a, in service this corporation now who probably killed them. Am I upset about that? Am I indifferent? Am I trying to avenge my family? You know, you get some questions that you can just start running your character as in the game. And then from there... X, Y, and Z happens, you can meet other people and start to develop kind of those personality traits, those connections and stuff like that that most role-playing games have players do. I just kind of like that idea that it really defines your character. Like, the 5th edition backstory stuff, I tell people when I run games, I'm like, if you want to use it, go ahead. You know, it's not mandatory. If you use it, okay, you have some ideas to start with, but it's very vague. This, I think, with Cyberpunk 2020... You have so many details in there that you have a lot of things you can work with, considering it's very heavy on that role-playing. The deal with the classes, there's obviously some classes that deal with a little more combat-heavy stuff, like there's mercs you can play as and stuff like that, but they also have a really cool one called Rockstar. You can straight up just be a Rockstar. They call it Rockstar because it's a, a kind of a good general term, but you know, you're in the cyberpunk future. It could be a DJ or whatever, but essentially it's just, you're a person who's Pretty good with music and very persuasive. One of your abilities is you can just start a fucking riot. You can just be playing a song and be like, hey, guys, let's go just burn that building. And you have like a thousand people be like, you know, that's a cool idea. Let's go burn down a building. You know, so right now you have all this cool interaction going on, but it's not none of it's combat oriented. Because, again, combat could happen, but it's really quick. Like Call of Cthulhu, it's as soon as you get into combat, you want to try and stop it as soon as possible because one slip up and you're dead. Or you lose an arm or whatever. And, you know, in Cyberpunk, it's easy to recover from a lost limb because of the futuristic cyber tech compared to something like Call of Cthulhu, which is back in the early 1900s slash mid-1900s, where you lose a limb and you're kind of fucked, <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I really, I really want to try Cyberpunk 2020 because of how much goes into simply your interactions. As I mentioned combat just now with... Getting into combat could be really bad. They have this really cool, really cool mechanic called a face-off, where let's say you go up and you try to start some shit with somebody. They, go, you know, obviously when you meet someone, you size them up a little bit. You kind of like look them over, be like, "Who is this person?" And so during this face-off, there's a size-up where two, where both the player and it's another player or it's an NPC or whatever. So it's the game master, whoever 
you both roll a die and you calculate a score based on your reputation. Like reputation is actually a pretty well-defined mechanic in here and a couple other things. And whoever wins that roll-off wins the face-off. And it's essentially an intimidation. Like if a player tries to say some shit to some an NPC and the player loses that face-off roll, the GM could just be like, you know, this guy seems kind of familiar. Like, maybe you saw him on some wanted posts or something, and you don't think it's a good idea to mess with him, and so you back off. And, like, right there, it helps keep the game running in terms of the players who are involved in a lot of, like, ridiculous shit, which can be really funny at times, don't get me wrong. But in this, you get into that ridiculous shit, like a sudden shootout, and that could be the end for the player. And so doing a face-off like that... It adds to the role-playing element, but it also is a great way to kind of circumvent combat from cluttering things up. I do like big combats. I really do. I like epic fights and big boss fights and stuff like that. Like, in D&D, I enjoy role-playing, and I live for the moment when we get up to that big baddie and face off and then have a celebratory role-playing party afterwards. Like, I love that kind of interaction. I like the fighting. In this, I like the idea that you don't have to worry about cannon fodder. You know, fighting 20 goblins and leveling up because there's no leveling up in Cyberpunk. You don't have to worry about just messy combat because the players are looking at, okay, this person looks like I shouldn't fuck with them. I'm going to leave because headshots are a thing in this. And if you take like eight or ten points of damage to the head and considering almost every weapon can average eight to ten points of damage, if that happens in one hit to your head, you just drop dead. It's a headshot. You're dead. Game over, man. It it sounds intense, and I mentioned before, I feel like this is good for new players to role-playing, and it's not because of that steepness in the terms of difficulty when it comes to combat, it's because of the emphasis on role-playing. There are finely detailed, laid-out instructions of how to do combat, how death and dying works, all these different modifiers, like there's a shit ton of charts in here, so combat is well-defined in terms of that. Everything else, though, goes into just what does it say about your character? You know, if you walk into that club strap, you know, with a sorrowful strap to your back, how do people interact with that? You know, people are going to look at you and be like, that guy's looking for trouble. So they're either going to size you up and try and do something, or people are going to back off. They're going to think you're an idiot because you're packing heat out in the open and everyone knows you're a solo bounty hunter looking, looking for somebody and they're all going to skedaddle. Like, it's really interesting that it's not just, hey, there's a fighter there. Like, Amber in my campaign, hey, it's a fighter with just three giant weapons. He's going to go murder some shit. But he's a hero, so let's help him out. In Cyberpunk, it's the bigger gun he has that he's packing, he's either a fucking idiot or I'm just going to walk away because of that survivability that Cyberpunk tries to push. So it makes characters think more about their decisions. And that's something I try and do in D&D. And I find it, for the most part, after talking to my players, rather successful that I do big combats, yes, and then outside of big combat, like, it, it kind of like goes back and forth. Like We'll do a couple sessions where like, there's big combat, and then we'll do a session or two where there's no combat whatsoever because we just role-play things out. We're like, what are you going to do about this? What do you think about this? You did this thing in the past. How is it coming back to haunt you? Like, Rayfire. <laughs> you let Rayfire live, so everyone, like, at first everyone's worried like she might come back and kill us, and now instead, wait, maybe the rogue got her pregnant. I like to push those elements in D&D, and I feel if I run a Cyberpunk 2020 game... I can push more of those elements. I can push those elements of what is the player doing that makes people want to interact with them or avoid them. And then on top of that, the people that the player does interact with, what stake is the player getting in that character's life? You know, down the road, do they have to hunt that player down? Because 
uh, they were told to, they were assigned to do that, or they found out that I was actually like their long-time rival or whatever. Or is it flip the side where that person comes after them now and it turns out, oh, that was actually a bounty hunter who was just trying to, you know, become nice with me to make an easier hit. Or there's a person down there, look, that you happen to get to know and now you're just trying to make sure they get by in life and help them out and be a good friend. Like, suddenly so many questions start popping up for the players. And because it's all about survivability, the end game, they think about that. Like, hey, this is a cool person. You know what? Life's been pretty shitty. This guy might be able to help me out. This girl might be able to help me out. Yada, yada, yada. And the classes have all different ways of handling that. I can already imagine it running a game like this. They have, there's a class you can be, which is media. It's all about finding the truth, whether you're a reporter on the scene or you're up in a news studio or whatever. So I could see like someone playing one of those, someone playing a net runner who's all about just hacking into the internet, finding hidden secrets, stuff like that buried. You know, having those two together would make for a very fun campaign, not because it's combat oriented. Like both the net runner and the media don't really want to get engaged in combat. It's not their thing. Their skills are more catered to other things like hacking in and breaking into the network and going public with information and trying to be charismatic. So you have the Netrunner who tries to find all this hidden information on corporations, sleazy mayors, shit like that, digging up online, and then send it to the media character who then goes public with it. Right there, you have a minimal campaign, like a combat with... Wow, that was terrible. You have a campaign with minimal combat. Like, maybe there's some hits that go out on them, so they have to deal with a few solos or gangs, gangbangers trying to take them out. But they mostly try and get away, and it's all focused on... How are you using your knowledge and your skills to propel the story forward and not in a violent way? A lot of times with Dungeons & Dragons and other role-playing games, the violence is used in terms of heroics. We're fighting the evil wizard. We're taking out the ancient lich. We're fighting the corrupt dragon, whatever it is. that The combat obviously propels the story forward because as a narrative, you're the heroes trying to solve the problem. And a lot of times it goes into combat and then role-playing on other hands. But in the end, some combat usually ends up happening. All well and good. For this, I want to try Cyberpunk 2020 to take a backseat from combat. Every now and then, maybe splash in a firefight to keep players on their toes. Be like, yeah, this, like, people are hunting you down. What are you going to do to stay hidden? And should they play it well? Well, we no longer have, we don't have combat. And it's simply just making sure you get the right people on your side. I, I welcome anyone who listens to look for the book. It's not... I don't remember the price off the top of my head. I don't have it open right now, but it's not too expensive. And everything you need to play Cyberpunk 2020, it's just – it's right in the core book. There's, as far as I know, there's no other supplements for Cyberpunk 2020. I think it's just the one book. You get like two or three people together. Like it needs to be a small group. I cannot imagine playing this like a party of four or five. I think that's a little too much for Cyberpunk. But you get like three people together. One of them's a – they call it a referee in this, you know, the game master. You have, like, two players. Everyone gets a copy of the book because you're going to need it. Like, with all the tables and charts and references and stuff like that, everyone's going to need their own copy of the book, I think. And you kind of give it a shot and, you know, put on a play. Try try heavy role-playing for once if you haven't done it before. I think this game sets it up well for people to get into heavy role-playing. That's going to do it just for this week. I, I want to take a time thinking about, you know, what my players did the previous week in D&D, and recently I've been combing through, like, every detail in Cyberpunk 2020. I was just kind of thinking about players, like, how people become human in-game, and I mean that in a sense of empathetic, having a soul, like, 
really having a stake in the in the virtual world or the fantasy world or whatever you want to call it, the world that's been created for a tabletop game, how the players actually make it come to life. Like a GM can only do so much. A game master can only do so much in making a world come to life. But it's on the players to really follow up with that. You can make an elaborate world, but if the players don't buy into it, there's really no point anymore. Like they, they're not caring to interact with anything. So you gotta think of your players. For D and D, it can be easy at times. I'm the fighter looking to, you know, I'm the fighter of the paladin trying to protect the land. I'm the bard trying to find the history of the world or whatever. And in cyberpunk, it's we're trying to survive and make money for our next big break. And along the way, if we do this, awesome. So what is it as a GM is presented to them that then they just run with? Because at the end of the day, the story does not advance because of the game master. A piece of advice, as a, if you're a game master, never build an entire narrative story from beginning to end that your players play through. Let them have decisions. Have some hooks ready. Have an idea of where the campaign might go. But at the end of the day, let the players decide where it goes. If they decide that, you know what, we're not going to go that way, we're going to go over here instead, call it for a session and see what you can build for that area they're going to. So if they're not going to town, they want to visit the ruins over there, what's in the ruins? You know, maybe it is a hard enemy that they can't encounter at the time and they learn something. But I think that's almost a cop-out at times. Like, make it something that they could possibly manage. Like, the players want to investigate this world and explore this world and find things. Give them a reason to do it. Whether it's part of their backstory or it's something new. Give them something that they can get invested in and hook onto, and let them run with it. Because then, the story writes itself. So take care, everyone. Glad you could join me again this week. We'll check in next week with something new. All right. So for now, enjoy the weather. It's, you know, what is it? Late January, going into February. It's still a little chilly out. Stay warm. Bye-bye.